This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we will be speaking with chefs and authors about their favorite ingredients. We then talk to the producer of that ingredient to learn about its history, how it's made, and why chefs love using it in their kitchens. Today we find ourselves in my home away from home, Andrea, Boonville, California, my new home away from home. That's something that's fairly recent, maybe the last... I don't know, five, ten years where yeah. I discovered this town that I just love. You've been talking to me about this town, you know, kind of since you've founded it yourself, and I'm so happy to be here. It is, it's absolutely stunning. You know, we drove from San Francisco about two hours north. You know, a lot of twists and turns, a little bit of Dramamine for our producers. Yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden, you don't, it opens up and you're in this beautiful, beautiful town, and we ended up at the Boonville Hotel. Yeah. It is stunning. Every room in this hotel is kind of unique and crafted. There's a farm. There's the restaurant. Across the street, they have a pizzeria where they're doing similar like farm-to-table pies. This place is magic, John. Yeah. I mean, you're in the, you know, we're here in the Anderson Valley. We are, you know, in the heart of Mendocino County. This area is legendary for growing two things, Andrea. One is Pinot Noir wine grapes, Mm -hmm. and the other is cannabis. And until very recently, the cannabis was an illegal activity. So this area was always kind of shrouded in a little bit of mystery. People were up in the hills. You know, take yourself back to the 1960s. There were a lot of like hippies and, you know, free spirits living in San Francisco. And then when they left the city, they kind of moved up into these secret, quiet places. And then a lot of them got into growing marijuana. So that's not a secret. And today it's, you know, a legal product in the state of California. So that's what this area was known for. Now, this is kind of a crazy story I'm about to tell you because today's ingredient is something called pimentaville, which is an espalette pepper. This is a great story. Grown in California, not just in California, but grown right here in Boonville. That's the ville part of pimentaville, Boonville. A friend of mine who's he's a friend today, but Before I knew him, a guy named Roger Skomenia, and we're going to be talking with his daughter Chrissy and her husband Gideon in a few minutes, Roger bought the Boonville Hotel. He was a businessman and a winemaker, and when he bought the hotel, he started looking at the receipts from the kitchen and the invoices, and he noticed that the chef was spending a lot of money on this product called Espelette Pepper from France. Very expensive. Very expensive, you know, $80, $100 a pound. It's a DOP product. Exactly. And it's this, you know, it's a granular pepper that you sprinkle on foods and into sauces, and you can do a lot of things with it, and it's got an amazing flavor. So Roger, seeing this, confronted the chef and was like, what are you spending all this money for? This is crazy. And the chef, uh, Johnny Schmidt at the time, explained to him why the pepper was so wonderful and why it fetched such a high price. So Roger quietly acquired the seeds from an Espelette farm in France, brought them to California, and he gave them to Nacho, his the vineyard man mm-hmm. at, at like his winery. Like a manager, farmer, yep. yeah. And he said, Nacho, can you grow these seeds for me into peppers? And Nacho, who grew up in Mexico, was like, Absolutely. I'm Mexican. <laughs> I can grow any kind of pepper. And they planted that first round of seeds. They produced the peppers. They dried them. They ground them. And Roger brought the finished product to Chef Johnny and said, what do you think of this Espala pepper? And Johnny was like, wow, this is really great. So fresh, bright. and Like, where did you get this? And Roger's like, I grew it right here in town. I'm assuming Johnny's head did a 360 at that moment. 
So they planted more seeds. They grew close to an acre of peppers at that point. So much so that Roger then had thousands of pounds of dried ground espalette pepper sitting in his little storage warehouse in Boonville, and he had no idea what to do with it because the restaurant had all they needed. And he, you know, as the story goes, he was driving down the highway and he was in Yountville, California, sitting at a red light with his wife, Pam, next to him. And he was a little concerned because he had a big investment in this now. And he said, Pam, I I don't know what I'm going to do with all of this pepper. And then serendipitously, is that the right word? Yeah. A chef's warehouse truck pulls up next to them at the red light. And Pamela looks out the window and taps Roger on the shoulder and says, Roger, look, look at this truck. It says, purveyors of the finest ingredients, where chefs shop. Write down that email address, write down that website. And he did. And he sent an email to our offices. But John, how many emails do we get? Do you think you get, we get hundreds of them right. every day right. from producers of you know olive oils and vinegars mm-hmm. and in all fairness, it's very hard to yeah. open every one of them and respond to every one of them. But this one stood out to you. Absolutely. It was I like, mean, this, I'm yeah. growing Espelette pepper in California. How cool is that? Let's take a look. And so I responded very quickly. And I was a little trepidatious. I figured, A, this person probably has like, you know, five, eight ounce packages right. that they can sell us. Or the price is going to be, you know, $500 a pound and, you know, priced out of the market versus what we can get from from France. So I responded immediately to Roger's email. I said, please send me a sample because first and foremost, we want to make sure the quality is good and know what you're talking about. Got the sample. Product was amazing. Better than really what we get from France. And then my next question to him again with my fingers crossed was, how much do you have have and what's this going to cost us? And Roger said, you know, I've got all you want and I can plant more. And I said, well, what's it going to cost? And again, I was very nervous that he was going to say something outrageous. And he goes, John, I have no idea. I know what it cost me to grow it. And Roger and I negotiated what was a fair price. And we ended up buying everything they produced. And they ended up planting another field of it. And today, you know, Chef's Warehouse is selling a literal ton of this product. I remember launching it in New York. And it was one of the most successful launches we had done because, to your point, all these chefs were so used to buying Espelette for such a high price. So to come in less expensive with an amazing product made in the U.S., I mean, it was a no-brainer and such an easy sell. Most chefs, I would say now, I mean, that's it's it's their go-to. Yeah, this is absolutely. And to bring this whole story full circle, we have Johnny Schmidt's nephew, Perry Hoffman, who's a super talented chef and who is now the chef at the Boonville Hotel. He's going to be talking to us about Pimentaville. And then Roger's daughter, Chrissy Skomenya, and her husband, Gideon, are going to talk to us. They're running the farm now. Mm-hmm. And so they've been going to take us on a tour, right? Yeah, we're going to go visit the farm and we're going to talk to them all about the pepper. So this is just like. But wait, John, I want to learn a little bit more about Perry because he has like a a lineage like no other, correct? Oh, yeah. So, well, Perry's grandparents are Don and Sally Schmidt, who are the original founders of the French Laundry. Huge. They sold their restaurant to Thomas Keller, if you've ever heard of that guy. They sold the French Laundry. It was named the French Laundry. He didn't even change the name. Uh, I think in 1991 or you know mid early 1990s, and then they moved up to the Anderson Valley and started. They they bought an apple orchard mm-hmm. and started making apple ciders and selling fresh apples and had the almost I don't I, I hate to call it an event space, but it's this this farm 
where they could cook and do all of these amazing parties and stuff like that. Are you going to take me there? I would love to. Yes, let's do that. Sally Schmidt sadly passed away uh, in 2022, not before she just released this incredible cookbook called Five California Kitchens. I just picked up a copy of it. It is I saw it in the lobby. Instantly I'm get one. one of my favorite cookbooks that I own. I have a lot of cookbooks. This one is on the counter in my kitchen today. It's got the recipe for her amazing chicken liver mousse and all mm. these other spectacular things. Yeah. So it's going to be a great episode. Yeah. Perry, Chrissy, Gideon. Yep. Boonville, awesome. California. Here we go. This episode is in partnership with the Chef's Warehouse and produced by Gotham Production Studios in New York City. Can you believe it? Here we are in Boonville, California. You've been talking about Boonville to me for years, and I, I I, don't think I was expecting it to be as magnificent as it actually is. This place is stunning. You found it. I, yes, it was very windy. Yeah. Windy roads. Don't tell everybody. <laughs> tell us a little bit about, I guess, Boonville and the area that we're in. Well, we're just about two hours north of San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, and we have a really beautiful road, Highway 128, that kind of twists and winds. It's kind of its way through the old kind of, you know, hay and orchard and prune valleys. And you kind of drop into Anderson Valley, which is just gorgeous, long, narrow valley, redwoods, you know, on the west side and beautiful big valley oaks on the right. And uh, just a wonderful little collection of farms and vineyards and homes and homesteads, apple orchards. There's something really special about when you drive into Boonville. Yes. You come through that winding mountain road, and then you get into this valley, the Anderson Valley. And every time I get here, I just have this relaxed, Mm -hmm. happy feeling. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't hurt that Perry Hoffman, who's the chef we're talking to today, is cooking some incredible food at the Boonville Hotel. You're the executive chef of the Boonville Hotel. Yeah. I mean, titles are pretty loose on this side of the hill, you know? So yeah, no, uh, chef partner. Yeah. Okay. Love it. uh, No, I, I feel blessed and lucky to cook here. It's just... You know, really just to me what every little town, every little community should be is this wonderful little, you know, collection of restaurants and wonderful little collection of farms and uh, some kick-ass wine to go along with it. So, nice. you know, we always joke around here, you know, just it's easier to, you know, grow it here, buy it here than it is to have somebody, you know, drive it here. You know, really. So for us, um, we try to really just look right here in our valley and, you know, kind of complete the picture, you know, kind of from a, you know, not, we don't hate to say fine dining, but, uh, you know, a few ingredients from far and beyond that kind of help us make it all come together. Yeah. So, so what originally brought me to Boonville, Andrew, because you, you know, said how I've been talking about it. Yeah. And we fell in love with a product that's grown in Boonville, which is an Espelette pepper, which is a French seed stock of this um, very special and very expensive mm-hmm. um, seasoning or spice. And the Boonville Barn Collective is growing what they call Pimentaville, named after Boonville. So the California version of the Espelette pepper. Exactly. And that is what brought me here. Now, what's interesting is my history with Perry, even though I never knew him until he came to Boonville, is that in 2015, a good friend of mine, Doug Poliner, who's a wine importer, mm-hmm. knew I was coming to California on a business trip unrelated to, to Boonville. And he said, if you're going to be in Napa, you need to go to the Healdsburg Shed to eat. He was just raving about it. And I was like, absolutely, I would love to go. And you know, he, he gave me a little bit of a description. So I grabbed a friend of mine, Melissa Howie, who lives in San Francisco. And I said, Melissa, let's go up. Let's do some wine tasting. We're going to go visit a couple of wineries in Healdsburg. 
and then let's go have lunch at this place called The Shed. And I'm telling you, from the moment we walked in the door, I was like, wow, this is a special place. It was a place. Beautiful. It was gorgeous. To yeah. say it's reminiscent, like I remember almost like white tile and... I don't want to say it looked like a Dean and DeLuca because that's not what it was. It was so Dean special. Dean DeLuca ever wa- always wanted to. Exactly. <laughs> and then we, the food started coming out and it was so beautiful and vibrant. Like the produce, it was clear that- Was there like a dish that you remember? Oh my, yeah, there were tartines, I remember, with anchovies and watermelon radishes. Before you'd really mm-hmm. seen watermelon yeah. radishes, like I think they're kind of having a moment right now in yeah. certain places. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I'd seen a watermelon radish. Um, I think there was a pesto underneath and then there were just salads with these incredible tomatoes and everything was wonderful. And I think I said to someone like, who's the chef here? Because, you know, you're surrounded by some of the greatest chefs in Napa and someone said, it's a guy named Perry Hoffman. I was like, okay, okay great. No, you know, in the back yeah. of my head. Yeah. And then sure enough, I was talking to my friend, Roger Scomagna, who really started the Espo at Pepper here. And he said, we have a new chef at the hotel. This is a two or three years ago that, that he said this to me. And I said, oh, who is it? And he said, Perry Hoffman. I said, I know that name. Was he not at the Healdsburg Shed? And he said, yes. And then all the dots became connected mm-hmm. because then I found out that your family was part of Johnny Schmidt, who was one of Roger's partners. Little, crazy little web. So we you talk have. about that yeah, a little t- bit you, So you're yeah. kind of, your family's California royalty of cooking. We, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't know until later in life, you know. Um, you know, that, I think that really being you know, got 10, 11, 12 years old, which kind of was when I just knew from, you know, looking back and, you know, my first kind of years of life is just how happy I was in the kitchen, um, working alongside my grandmother, the laundry. My mom was a waitress. So, wait, you know, don't brush the, over okay, that too yeah, quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You say the laundry. The laundry. Like your it. your the laundry, grandmother. The hotel. Your, yeah. your grandmother and grandfather started the French laundry in 1978. Yeah. It was just grandma and grandma's restaurant to us, you know, and my mom, that was her day job. Um, so, Honestly, some of my earliest memories are running around, you know, that building two, three years old, you know, pretty much knee high and just terrorizing with my brothers, you know, and stealing sodas and little amaretto cookies. And, um, but, you know, my childhood kind of progressed and, you know, it was a family business and, you know, kids got put to work really quick, you know, starting at age five and six, you know, during the day, like I said, my mother was a waitress and it was kind of all hands on deck. Uh, she would cook during the day as, you know, her fellow coworkers did. And then they all put on aprons and went on the front of the house and became servers. Um, it was very much, you know, a prefix menu that, you know, my grandmother just took and run with it, uh, just ran with it. And um, it was something beautiful. And I just absolutely fell in love with everything about that kitchen. And it still to this day, when you look back and you see kitchens, it, it just not, it wasn't real. Uh, it was real to me. But once I left and had a career in stainless steel dungeons and you know, cooking three floors underground in Manhattan. And, you know, it didn't, you know, beautiful bowls of artichokes didn't exist on the counter next to, you know, a gorgeous bouquet of flowers that was there just to be there and with natural sunlight. Right. So, you know, for myself, it was just, um, it just instilled this love of food, you know, kind of being, you know, just really enjoying food as a fat kid, along with my brothers and I, and chasing around things in the restaurants. It was like we're, we were the little mice, you know. Nice. <laughs> but and when then, did you know you wanted to do this as a career? Like, so I guess right? kind of fast forward about 12, 13 years old, sitting at Buttercream Bakery. For those who know it in Napa, leaned over to my father and said to my parents, "said I think I want to cook for a living," you know. And of course, you know they knew everything about restaurants. Um, that was hard, and you know um, relationships are hard, and family was hard, and not a lot of money in it. So they immediately kind of talked 
uh, me out of it. But, uh, you know, came 15 years old and I was really lucky. A little neighborhood restaurant opened right around the street from where we all grew up. Uh, just getting my haircut next door. Chef walked out. I was looking at his menu. We'll never forget it. Laura Chanel goat cheese of sun-dried tomato bruschetta. And, um, you know, kind of naturally cocky kid thinking like kind of knew how to cook because I was, you know, had a few epiphany of caramelized onion moments at home with Jack cheese and olive oil by myself at 12 or 13 and said, your bruschetta looks good, chef. He's like, oh yeah, you want a job? So he's like, open up for the first day tomorrow. So the next day kind of went in, you know, apron in hand, very, very, you know, not so amazing knife skills as a 15 year old, uh, but had just the most amazing kind of foundation of like what good food should be and was. And uh, yeah, that was kind of my, my culinary school for the next three years. Again, kind of yelled at by older white guys. And, you know, I can't tell you how many sabotages that happened. Now it's coming down. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, had your grandmother and grandfather sold the French laundry to a, an unknown chef from New York named yeah, Thomas Keller? Right. Yeah. So, you know, um, they sold it to Thomas, you know, roughly 1990. You know, that deal was kind of in the works for a few years. Um, but that's kind of when it exited my life when um, I was seven to eight years old. Um, um, and it was it was sad. You know, I think it was a little bit sad for everyone, including my grandmother. I mean, she was looking forward to, you know, during, you know, um, the middle of the French Laundry kind of heydays. They purchased the farm up here. Um, you know, they would found a really good model, like I said, with the prefix menu. They had a really great family friend come over from France, helped run the restaurant for a month. They took off to Sea Ranch, took a month off, rented a house, and on the way back from this kind of month-long, you know, vacay for the first time, you know, I think most of their children were, you know, past the age of 10, all five of them. And uh, they drove down a little sleepy road to take the long way home back to the restaurant, and they drove past the, um, the apple farm, which was at that point kind of, you know, an abandoned 40-acre um previous steelhead salmon resort fishing village that had for sale sign for it and wow. uh, they bought it the next day and uh, they came home and made one of the biggest decisions of their life without even telling any of their kids on a whim and um, you know fast forward god 40 years later here i am built a house on it living it with my children and something that we can never dream of even five years ago this That's is a incredible. magical yeah. place we had dinner there last night mm -hmm. and i have to tell you first of all the dinner was f fabulous um it was uh, really in honor of your grandmother, Sally Schmidt, mm -hmm. who sadly passed away uh, earlier this year. Yeah. And it, a lot of your family members were there. Um, I think your uncle, Johnny, mm -hmm. was cooking along with uh, mm -hmm. your, might have been your aunt? or was Yeah, a little bit, like I said, the family <laughs> it's, it's business, family all the kids yeah. work. Yeah. So uh, yeah, my mom's sister, my aunt Terry was up, you know, multiple cousins, I think were on site, you know, helping out. Everyone does a little bit of something. Um, you know, but to really answer your question, you know, the only reason I started cooking was really because of my grandmother. I looked around to all 13 cousins. I was like, well, my brother Byron's not going to cook. And, you know, my younger brother's not going to cook. And this cousin and that cousin. I went through the list. And knowing that, like, even at age 10, 12, 11, uh, anywhere in there, that what she was doing was just magical. Like, I felt it in my bones without really knowing what she was doing or even the rest of the world really knowing what she was doing at that point. And... Um, so I felt on this weird kind of sense of duty to take it on and kind of challenge it and figured I probably had a really good story to tell if I could just figure out how to cook first, you know? So my career was amazing. I, because of that story and, you know, I think my, it was kind of fast forwarded a little bit, you know, and I really, really do feel crazy lucky, uh, just because, uh, we all know there's some, you know, marketing and public relations to that. And so I think, God, I look back at 24 years last month, 
cooking wow. professionally nonstop. And it's really all I've ever done. Worked for the Fairmont group for years, traveled all over the world with them. Uh, Bears, the Bears group kind of uh, when they were still a little bit smaller. So Bears just lay in Rutherford. Uh, Domaine Chandon, uh, chef and general manager of that property for almost a decade. Uh, so that was really wonderful and worked with just kind of big teams and um, just, yeah, I've just been crazy lucky and for food to bring me all over this world has just been mind blowing. You know, the kid that walked, you know, out of that hair studio the next day and telling chef about his, you know, how good a sun-dried tomato and Laura Chanel goat cheese bruschetta looked, you I know, love it. but uh, I wouldn't do anything else. How uh, do you describe your cooking? Because I have my uh, own idea of it and description of it, but I'm curious to see. I, I honestly feel I didn't really learn how to cook till about probably six years ago, you know, it, okay. and it's just. Um, what do you mean by that? You know, it's it's really difficult because I think you're trained at one point when you're really, really young, you're trained a menu, right? And you go through and you, you learn a station. You're just executing. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, and historically in America, so many of those stations and so many of those menus, they don't change. Like maybe like heirloom tomatoes make an appearance on like a Niswa salad. And that was like the model for my kind of the restaurants of the 90s and early 2000s. Um, you know, of course, you had kind of chefs in the city, you know, really focusing on, okay, here's a winter menu, summer menu. But it's really difficult to run restaurants creatively and I think really efficiently when you have this menu that's predetermined, you know, weeks in advance, months in advance. Um, so I think in this day and age, we kind of fast forward it. Um, there's nothing more than kind of just the farmer's market special is what we call it. It's just buy the ingredients, figure out where you're cooking next, you know, and especially where we are here now, um, you know, in Boonville, like I said, it's just so hard to be able to get, you know, things up and over the hill. And if I was going to write a menu two weeks, you know, ago for last night and I need 40 ingredients to pull it off, I would spend my entire time just trying to source those 40 ingredients instead of just buying what I know, what's in front of me, what's amazing, you know, get proteins up and over the hill, see what size the sole are. Does this make sense? Can I kick enough to pie on Sunday? What can I move over to our second restaurant across the street? So to me, it's like this harmonious balance of kind of cooking what's in front of you. I really feel that a garden is one of the, the secret weapons of any chef. Um, we are so lucky to have just a little half acre garden here, right, right out the back door, um, of the kitchen. And you're utilizing that garden daily? Nonstop. You know, we utilize it because, you know, we're a small little community. Like we cut big checks to farmers, you know, we've cut bigger checks on the other side of the hills to farmers. Like we can make or break little small communities like a business like Shed. We did 10 million in food and beverage, you know, we cut checks to 50 to 60,000 to the, some of the top. So we understand our responsibility and our role in that. Um, but the last thing we want to do when it's a perishable product is watch it go to waste because we said that we have to have a, po a pork and a halibut and a salmon and a lamb chop and kind of this old format. Um, so kind of going back to my grandma's French laundry and something that I thought was kind of like, oh, you don't have all these options, you know, later in, you know, but the prefix format is just saying like, hey, this is what we're cooking tonight and trust the chef and trust it. Uh, let, you know, hire people and work with people that are really willing to learn kind of a style. I really enjoy, you know, just cooking with beautiful, great raw ingredients and having a badass pantry behind the scenes. Um, I can't tell you how many little, you know, dried different types of chilies that we have alone, you know, which is this whole just gateway to, I think my kind of ingredient kind of war chest, if you will, about 10 years ago. Um, you know, there's always little you know, dried chilies are confusing for chefs of the nineties. It's like, what do I do with these things? Do I reconstitute them? Do I throw them in there? Do I marinate it? Do I grind it? You know, you got to look through the dishwashers, but like, Hey man, what is going on with these right. guajillos? You know, how do I do this? And 
you know, check out what the guys are doing on family. Um, so for us, it's cooking off the cuff to answer your question. It's, it really is, I think, just building a base knowledge of all different types of cuisines and cultures and then trying to build, build a meal around it. Um, something that we really focused on, you know, and Shed was great, you know, but when I look back on it, I was like, God, that was just like an awesome, crazy collection of 15 crazy dishes. It was hard to make like a succession of a meal out of it. It was more of a lunchtime spot, so it worked there. But on this side of the hill in Boonville, um, it's, you know, my Uncle Johnny has done such a great job of kind of pounding this in the back of my skull. And I think it's like, it's not just about the dish, it's about the meal. You know, and that's so important. I love that. And we have so many guests that stay with us for multiple nights. And we're always like, okay, what did they do last night? And, you know, if we have something that's kind of, um, you know, Mediterranean based, it's like, okay, let's not flip this into like some weird Peruvian ceviche into like, you know, a hot pot. It's like, what do we, and then paella on Sunday. It's like, what are we doing, guys? You know, so we're always trying to keep it, you know, it's a risky way of cooking, you know, because you don't have these set menus that you train for, you know, station after station and weeks and months in advance. And um, that's like the fun but, in it. I don't know. But I truly believe, that, you know, 24 years into it, that, like it's how restaurants should work. It's how mm-hmm. you can kind of that stigma of like restaurants can just lose money. It's like, no, you can support an amazing staff, amazing livelihoods, amazing community. Just don't let things rot in your walk-in. Yeah. Buy it, use it, let it be gone, move on. You know, it's all about the meal. So for me, I do feel it's just the most efficient, economical way to cook. And not only just, it's so creatively rewarding, you know. I think you you, you guys here are definitely blessed with an abundance of superb produce in season. Yeah. Um, we're not too far from the coast. Yeah. So there's, you know, seafood and, mm. and sea vegetables and things like it that. It is so yeah. cool in America. I mean, you mentioned watermelon radishes yeah. having their their moment. Yeah. You know, in NorCal, they had their moment eight to ten years ago, as you kind of mentioned it. Yeah. But that's kind of trickling down into the rest of, you know, America and, you know, some of the interior and middle states. And, you know, there's definitely, you know, this awesome food revolution. There's a really great book, uh, United States of Arugula. I don't know if you ever read sure. it. It mm-hmm. talks about it. Yep. You know, and it's, um, it's just pretty amazing. The American, you know of where we've come in just 50 to 70 years. Well, I want to bring it back to the pepper. Because the espalette. The espalette pepper, which is, you know, kind of, can you tell us, I mean, I don't know how you're incorporating this pepper into your cooking. Tell us about the pepper, the flavor yeah, profile. I guess I can tell you my first, when I first came across it, I was actually at a Berry's Display, so back up 15 years ago, and myself and Robert Curry were just part of like an amazing culinary team. And we had a lingcod dish that was really cool. The fish was coming out of Fort Bragg right here. Uh, I mean, that was hard enough to get, but we did it with a brown butter espalette nage and made stock, you know, from the bones. And this was before Roger and Johnny and, uh, you know, Pimentaville and the Bucket Ranch ever came to be. And it was, we reconstituted that pepper in that brown butter stock with the nage and kind of poured it around that lingcod. And it just provided like, you know, as a young chef, you kind of look for, for sweetness, for flavor, right? But you always want to throw like, oh, let's do curry and pears. And, you know, you always kind of look for this little sweetness because it excites the palate. And that was kind of an epiphany for myself, you know, just because like, oh, my God, here's all this amazing depth of fruit and flavor and chocolate and, you know, orange zest and clove and spice that didn't come from like the raw ingredient of chocolate or orange zest it was all kind of embodied and it just came from you know that chili pepper uh, just being unique to the varietal that it is so that pepper was giving all of those nuances of flavor yeah, that and you just, just described that's amazing yeah and just brought like just between the brown butter and the stock bring it together yeah. so anyways <clears throat> fast forward five six seven years later when you know i think just right behind kind of where we're 
sitting currently, they started a little test field of about an acre. And uh, Johnny brought some to the family, the first jars. And it was actually mind-blowing of how shitty, excuse my language, that the Espelette chili that we were getting. From at, France. From France really was compared to grown here in the States, not sitting in a cryovac bag for two bag for years. Mm-hmm. And you could just tell just by the color of it that it was bright, like bright red, you know, where everything else was just that we were getting looked like oxidized, almost like a ground chipotle powder or something. I got to interject in one point here because what's really funny is that Roger, who started the pepper company, the Pimentaville, told me this uh, story when he became an investor in the Boonville Hotel. He said he was looking, you know, he was going through the invoices and talking with Johnny and saying he kept noticing this Espelette pepper on the invoices and that the the hotel, the restaurant was spending a lot of money on this thing called yeah. Espelette pepper. And he mm. had no idea what it is. And for people who don't know what Espelette pepper is, it's a ground spice, right? It's peppers that it's are peppers from the Bosque region of France. Yeah. Right. They have AOC They're about 12 designation. to 15 centimeters. They're yep. red. Um, they start green and they ripen to a red color. Um, they get dried. Yeah. And then ground into a fine. You don't have to dry them. Some people make jams, oh, jellies. Okay. They can you can you know stews and sautés. Got it. So an interesting story is that when Roger Scomegna, who was became an investor in the Boonville Hotel, he had mentioned to me that he was looking at some of the invoices with your uncle Johnny, and he noticed that there was a lot of money being spent on this pepper called Espelette pepper. He had no idea what it was. Um, and you know, when finally he got a, you know, the description of it as being this dried, you know, ground seasoning, he went to his gardener or farmer, Nacho Flores and said, Nacho, if I get seeds for this type of pepper, can you grow it? And Nacho said, yeah, sure. And I believe his response was like, grow grow anything. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And he came back. And started growing, and it was just almost not out of necessity, but just almost like, let me see if we can do this. And to your point, Roger reached out to me out of the blue, and we got samples of the product. And I said, the first thing I said is, this is better than the French product, Mm. and it's less expensive. Mm -hmm. It's brighter, to your point. It's really vivid. The flavor was so alive, and it's like having a tired wine versus you know something that's just screaming. Yeah, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think at at chefs, you know, we have been selling Espelette forever. And then when we introduced the Pimentaville, it was a game changer for us. Yeah. I think now most of our salespeople, when they go and, you know, customers say, oh, I need Espelette, they say, do you want to try this immediately? Just because it's, it yeah. is, a, I mean, it's a better product. It's coming from the U.S. And it's just incredible. So it's, it's killer. I mean, we joke around. I mean, I think Johnny, Johnny Schmidt might have coined it, but he's like salt, pepper, and Pimentaville, mm-hmm. you know? Well, that's what I had with my yeah. eggs this morning I mean, at the uh, hotel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's right down the street and we feel blessed. We use that pepper in so many different ways. We feel so lucky to be connected, you know, to Roger and Nacho. Um, for example, when the first frost comes through, they're pretty much done with all the peppers that are left on the vine. Right. We love them, you know, for, as chefs because they drop all their water weight. And then we take them, ferment them out, turn them into hot sauce, and it makes the best, most concentrated hot sauce. Nice. Because it's dropped awesome. the water weight. So what are some of the uses... Uh, you know, you mentioned that beautiful ling cod dish. What are, what else are you, you know, doing I mean, with it? Honestly, it's it, it's endless. You know, I mean, we put anything in, in from wet rubs to dry rubs. You know, um, vinaigrettes, eggs, fish, crudos, ceviches. You know, we replaced it for pepper and you know all. I mean, tons of different types of charcuterie product. You know, curing. You know, lo, you know, curing pork as lomo rolling in that. 
doing lardo crusted in pimentaville and agent now gets that beautiful you know kind of just beautiful clean line yeah uh bright you know fresh spice fruitiness on the outside with that you know clean fat on the inside um we use it where it makes sense you know and i think that's just a lot of what cooking is just thinking through like where do i want this flavor and does it make sense with what it's going with next yeah you know especially in a meal you know um you know format i feel like in my house it's replaced black you know traditional ground black pepper i use it all the time um i had a meal in france a couple of years ago which was amazing and one of the starters the chef was from the basque region of france and she had sent out a homemade butter that they rolled with the pepper Insane. and just on yeah. the bread and it's it's got a little bit of heat it's not a hot pepper right it's yeah. it's got a sweetness to it and a it, it's so cool i mean it's so you know universal in the way that you can use it as a finishing salt you know or a finishing pepper and it's because it's dried it actually lends itself to reconstituting or flavoring things so as you mentioned like you know fat is like one of the best extractors extractors right. of flavor uh, butter. We made ice cream with it earlier in the year, which was just killer. Cool. You know, Pimentaville brown butter ice cream, which is pretty banging. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. We just use it kind of where we want, but it we go through it quick. I'll tell you that. But like, let's so. talk about the flavor profile of the pepper because I think you know you kind of mentioned like chocolate, orange, yeah. like these unique. You know, when you think about peppers, I don't know if my mind goes there. So. Like, how would you describe it? Yeah, I mean, it is a, on the side of peppers and in the way that they dry it. They dry it, you know, very light. You know, when they dry peppers, heat has a lot, lot to do with it. Lower and the slower, the better. Um, there's a risk, you know, from, you, you know, know spoilage, spoilage when you do it lower and slower. If you do it hotter, you know, which I think Nacho just has down. Of course, he has a custom-built dehydrator out of a shipping container, next level. Um, you know, but I've seen it where other dry houses will do it much hotter, and the flavor changes completely. Uh, the pepper starts steaming more, puts more steam in the environment, and that's where you get kind of more of the chocolate flavors, which is really cool. It's, yeah. You know, cooking with this pepper year after year. Could you do like mole with it? Completely. It, that it's would a, be awesome. It's a, yeah. It is a spicy pepper. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it is not, it's not a little pasilla or anything or a wajillo. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is some true kick to it. So I think a little bit does go a long ways. Um, but for me, you know, it is. Very bright, very fruited, um, very much like orange, kind of almost pomegranate kind of flavors. I think all chilies have this little slight nuances of like dark chocolate. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, like some of the, you know, Bucket Ranch grows amazing chili, other chilies as well. The mulatto chili, um, the Pasilla Negro and so forth. And it is just, um, so for me, for the moles, I kind of like the more the darker. Mm-hmm. And this I kind of lend towards you know, the more kind of like lighter aspects of seasoning, you know, like eggs are a perfect example Mm -hmm. uh, because you can still really taste a great yolk and you still taste the great pepper and kind of what it does. It doesn't overpower. Exactly. Got it. Yeah. Very cool. Um, So you being here in the Anderson Valley, you've got, you know, you've, you've got an abundance of farms around as we talked about. So you have this great relationship with Chrissy Skomaga, Roger's daughter at the Boonville Barn Collective. And Chrissy's the farmer. Chrissy now runs that business. She's got a team with her and we're going to visit with them Mm -hmm. later. I imagine that because you're just a mile or so down the road that you are kind of their test kitchen, their R&D guy. Are they coming to you with the peppers and other products? They... All the product makes it into us, like their entire lineup. And as we kind of talked about before, you know, the pepper is so universal and Chrissy's no dummy there. So they have a wonderful expanded line of not just the dried pepper, 
Uh, they have, you know, the gorgeous strawberry preserves that are infused with the chili, yeah. um, all different types of chili peppers, salts. Uh, they do, you know, fresh, beautiful aretha's in the wintertime, you know, and we're always giving her kind of little feedback. Uh, we're always kind of a little experimenting. Um, you know, I feel lucky to kind of have whatever they, you know, um, to add to our pantry, you know, is what it is. So kind of put it in our little war chest. I'm trying uh, to talk her into growing Calabrian chili peppers. Oh, yeah. Andrea and I visited Calabria about three, three years four ago, years ago. Yeah. Well, she obviously heard you because it's, I have some right behind you done. We put oh. them on our pizza. Oh. Yeah. Okay, well, We're so try those. she's doing the dried ones. I'm trying to talk her oh, into fresh. doing them yeah. in oil. Like fermented, um, like pickling? Exactly. That would yeah. be awesome. The preserved ones. It's nice. such yeah. a great item. They're, they've shown that they can really do a great job growing yeah. peppers. I think they're having a moment right now, Calabrian chili. Oh, for sure. They're yeah. super popular. That would be popular. awesome. Yeah, Calabrian chili, I mean, you know, chili crisp, just in general. Chili, 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 everything. And, you know, I, you know, 10, 12 years ago, I it's, this doors opened up into the chili world and what those flavors were and learned how to, like, utilize them. And I'm just so excited and stoked that everyone else is, find, you know, really finding them and experiencing them and... Um, they're not hard to use, you know, and they just elevate everything you taste. Another thing that I've noted over the last, uh, say my first trip here was probably close to 10 years ago. It seems like it's a slow growth, but there's a growth happening here in the Anderson Valley. And, you know, in part due to the excellent food that you guys are serving at the hotel and the hotel is so beautiful. Andrea, oh, it's stunning. I mean, it's just, it's got this great vibe to it. And All the it's rooms so are a special place. Yeah. I just feel like this is kind of, you know, it was interesting. I was reading the French Laundry Cookbook by Thomas Keller that was written in 1999. And he has a chapter, or the, you know, devoted to your grandparents. Mm. And he calls them the ultimate purveyors. And in that, he mentioned their move to this area to Philo. Yeah. Is it Philo or Philo? Philo. Philo. Okay, sorry. Not the P-H-P-H-I-L-O. <laughs> Sally Schmidt said she feels this is going to be the next Napa Valley up here. And that was a long time ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that it it, it definitely d- doesn't have that. Uh, I, I don't no, know. No, I know what d- you're talking about. Because when we were driving up, you're, you it's were passing. It's a low-key yes, version of it. Yeah. Definitely I think more a low-key. wonderful low-key gr- version of it. Yeah, knowing my grandmother, it was the Napa Valley that she used to love. Yes. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, yeah, or the yeah, Napa Valley that she, when she mentioned that, it was the Napa Valley that, it, you know, it yeah. was then, you know, in present. Um, it's you know, pretty shocking to see kind of where Napa was and where it's gone. Uh, kind of us in Boonville, you know, growth is, is exciting, but in a very strategic Boonville type way. Um, yeah, it's a it's a little time warp, and you know, we like we want just enough people to find it. I think you know? that's uh, that's exactly. And, yeah. Is there a language in Boonville? Yeah, Boonling. Boonling. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's it's. Is it is that real? Like, do people? I only know one person who speaks it, Kendra. Yeah, there's, you know, it's, it's hilarious, you know, and, you know, just to skim the surface of it, it will, and because, you know, original boonters, if you will, and um, the old timers up here, they were uh, hated anyone coming up and over in that hill and Teresa, if you will. And uh, so they didn't want anyone to know what they're talking about. So they created their own language based on just nonsense of the English words, you know, put together. So, you know, it's, I think there's what, five to 6,000 words in their vocabulary. It's not huge. Do you know any of the yes. words? I, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, we're always looking for inspiration for stupid names for pizzas or whatever it may be. Not that we've used any yet, but uh, soon enough, we're hoping to have a cocktail bar and there has to be a Bucky Walters on the menu. What's a Bucky <laughs> Walters? Yeah, Bucky Walters is a phone booth. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of businesses have taken, you know, little parts, uh, you know, the Bootleen, uh, Penny Royal, for example, the wonderful, you know, winery and creamery have 
sheep and goat's milk just right down the street from us. Uh, they do a really wonderful, their flagship cheese, if you will, to me, is their uh, kind of fresh chev, and it's lychee, which is lychee's cheese in Bootling. They do another cheese that's the log lifter, which in Bootling means uh, there's big rain coming, big flood coming because it's lifting all the logs from the river. You know, so it's it's fun and it's cool that people are still kind of keeping alive. I don't know how many people actually still speak, you know, have a kind of a full conversation back and forth. But, you know, when you're here in Boonville, kind of poke around and yeah. welcome to Anderson Valley sign and you'll see a little Gorgomondy shovel tooth and what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's cool. And, you know, it's part about this little quirky charm. I think they'll always try to keep Boonville what it is. And there's a wonderful little uh, community here that does really recognize that it's in a special place in this crazy world and uh, really trying to keep it that way. Uh, but still keep it alive with spirit and jobs and community and keep everyone engaged. And um, I'm just thrilled and you know, thankful to be a part of that. When well, I walked in my room, John, yeah. there was a nice little note that said, you know, welcome, Andrea, you know, to the Boonville Hotel. The paella dinner is at 5.45. Oh, we have paella tonight? Yeah. So I want to know about the paella dinner. Yeah, so pretty cool. You know, um, every other day of the week, we do just wonderful kind of four or five course prefix menus. But on Sunday, uh, during the warmer months, uh, we, we, we have two kind of outdoor gorgeous fire pits and really large paella pans. And we do kind of a, just a big, really fun kind of multi-course dinner with uh, wonderful little small plates around and the outside bar is open and yeah we do it every Sunday and we love it we kind of change it up each week from what we have uh, here we are you know mid-September and just you know some p- tomatoes are peaking eggplant is peaking peppers are peaking you know so we just feel lucky so uh, yeah we're doing a little uh, just kind of simple classic uh, peeled de sapo melon the Spanish melon with uh, some spicy copa tonight and some green Jimmy Nardellos and lots of lime and alliums and mint uh, simple little salad of uh, greens from the garden with kind of a green goddess with lovage and basil and yeah, paella, some California white sea bass and tons of house-made chorizo and some saffron that's gl- uh, grown just in the county over from us, which is really cool. And big old glob of aioli right on top. And, Yum. Yeah, oh, I can't I, wait. We came yeah, on the right so. weekend. Yes, we this did. This is amazing. This is so, so good. Because you're a few hours north of San Francisco, is sourcing products a challenge here because i know you yes you've got great local produce and you've got seafood but for other things that you're using is it do you find it a challenge yeah i mean um ups and fedex are amazing you know and i think in this world you know for us to you know we we still kind of look here there and everywhere for what we need to kind of complete things um there's a lot of ingredients that aren't grown here that shouldn't ever be grown here or can't be grown here and i think you know i've always looked at it you know there's no reason why we can't celebrate you know, the harvest of another area and, you know, keep that here. So for me, that's always kind of created the link. Um, You know, we get great things from Chef's Warehouse. We get great things from fish companies. You know, um, they don't always drive over the hill, but we have them drop in my sous chef's cooler in the back of his truck and drive it up and over. But got to get live California uh, Santa Barbara spot prawn somehow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so you guys, so you'll send your guys yeah, down. I mean, down it's, yeah, closer. I, I mean, if you're a chef, it's all about ingredients, right? And we have this lust to search this world to its bitter end for something new and tasty or, you know, a flavor that we have a memory associated with. And uh, I, I love celebrating the things that come around each season. And uh, what the hell else are we doing this for? So this is awesome. Oh, thank Thanks you so, so much. much for your time. Yeah, no, thank thanks you for, for having welcome. me. Yep. We're so psyched. We can't wait for dinner tonight. Can't wait to I can't feed wait. You. It's been a great talk learning more about Espelette Pepper, Chef Perry Hoffman of the Boonville, Boonville Hotel. Hotel. Come see us. Thanks, <laughs> thanks guys. so much. Thank, thank you. you. I'm Chrissy Scomenia from Boonville Barn Collective, and you're listening to Ingredient Insiders. 
Our amazing California tour continues, Andrea. It's taken us down the road. We just talked to Perry. And now we are at the Pepper Farm with Chrissy and Gideon, husband and wife duo, Pepper King and Queen extraordinaire. Yeah, we are at the Boonville <laughs> Barn Collective with Chrissy Skomenya. She's the founder and her husband, Gideon Burdick. They're the husband and wife team that create the amazing Pimentaville, this Espelette pepper from California that we are crazy about. But Chrissy, you started Pimentaville, right? Yes. How did you start it? What was what was your idea behind yeah. it? So I was working um, at the Boonville Hotel where Perry is, um, and we were using a lot of Espelette in all of our cooking. We wanted to use a lot more. It's a very expensive product, as people know, when you import it from France. And we had land, we had people, and we were able to get some seeds to try to grow it here in California. It really fit with our ethos of what we were doing in the restaurant. And we had some seeds, put them in the ground. And our incredible foreman, Nacho, um, he grew the chilies for us and came into the restaurant one day with a bus tub full of brightly red, ripe Espelette chilies and said, all right, Chrissy, what do we do next? And I thought, well, I've never, <laughs> I've never dried a pepper before, but, you know, we'll find out what happens. Oh, so he brought you fresh peppers. Yes. <laughs> he Got brought it. me the fresh Espelette chilies and was like, well, I did my part. Like, right. good luck. Figure it out now. <laughs> And so that was in 2012, um, and now we are in our 11th harvest of growing Espelette chilies here in California, um, and it's been an adventure going from like 10 or 20 plants all the way up to our maximum of like 68,000 Espelette chili plants. Um, we've reined it in a little bit um, to really like manage how many we're growing and like what the right balance is, um, but yeah, that it's the basic story of the chilies. Where did Espelette peppers start? Is it France? Is it Spain? I always get confused because I know it's in that Basque region. Yeah, right on the border. So the Basque region of France is where it's used most um, regularly. Um, and that's the flavor that we're emulating is the French version of Piment d'Espelette. And so since we are not an Espelette, we can't call our California-grown Espelette chili powder just Piment d'Espelette. Um, so we give a nod to California and our town of Boonville by calling it Piment Deville. And so our California version of Espelette showcases its our like funny quirky town's roots um while also trying to make it something more similar to what other chefs are used to using and have seen before now what i didn't realize when you were talking earlier so were you actually cooking at the boonville hotel yes oh okay i didn't know that i did not know that and awesome so what was it like going from you know chef to farmer really different. It's been it's been an interesting adventure. So when I was working at the hotel and the restaurant, I was there for about four and a half or five years. Um, and I really loved cooking. Uh, but I knew that it wasn't a, like a full lifestyle that I was like ready to really jump into. Um, so I actually moved to Boston and got my master's in agriculture and food policy. And that's where I met Gideon. Um, and when we were both really unsatisfied with the jobs we were doing in Boston and like really couldn't figure out what made the most sense to do there. We knew that coming back to California and taking over this business that I had started and kind of left for a bit, it was a really great option for us. Um, and so we moved back to California in 2019 and took over the farm, started Boonville Barn Collective, um, which is where we house Piment Deville. It's where we grow the chilies and we grow a lot of other um, crops as well. Uh, but it's it's definitely different. 
the nice thing is that we get a mix of being able to think about food all the time, but sometimes that's in front of a computer, sometimes that's packing orders, sometimes that's harvesting chili, sometimes it's processing the peppers, sometimes it's going to trade shows and doing photo shoots. It's like a big mix of doing a lot of different things, which is nice. Can you take us through the process of how you make the pepper? Absolutely. From you, You're <clears throat> planting the actual, you, you guys are actually growing the peppers from yeah. seed? Yes. So we start with seed. Um, we've got a greenhouse here. And in February, um, we plant the seeds into like start trays in the greenhouse. And they slowly start to emerge and germinate. Um, and we keep them in our greenhouse till about the end of May, early June. We actually get them in the ground pretty late. Um, here in Boonville, we have a coastal influence. And so it gets really cold at night. And um, even if it heats up really hot during the day, we still have cool nights and it keeps the soil pretty cold even into the early parts of, ju- uh, early parts of June. Um, and so we don't get them into the ground until like early June. Um, otherwise, they kind of just languish for a while. But we plant them into the ground on the farm in June. Um, and then we wait and see what the summer is like, see how the weather is, see how long things take to ripen. Um, and right now we're waiting for everything to f- turn fully red on the plant before we harvest anything. Um, so we'll start harvesting in about a week or two and we harvest all the chilies by hand. So we harvest into buckets, dump those buckets into big grape picking bins, and then with tractors move those to back to the greenhouse where we wash everything, dump all the chilies out onto big racks and dry it in the greenhouse for a bit. And after it's a little bit dry, uh, we pull out all the seeds and the stems by hand. um, And then those go into our dehydrator where they get really nice and crisp. And then out of the dehydrator, um, once they're really crispy, like you can actually like break them and eat them like potato chips. um, We put them into our big grinder and then bulk pack that into like big 30 pound vacuum sealed packs and hold that until we're ready to fulfill orders for it. Um, So from start to finish, it's really like we start the seeds in... February. And then our last harvest will probably go into mid-November. Um, so it's it's not like we have this big break of time during the year where we're not thinking about these peppers. It's like a, a it's fully year-round. year-round experience. How did you guys learn how to do that, like that process? It's pretty, pretty complicated. Lots of trial and error. Got I it. mean, the first times we were doing it, we like in the kitchen at the hotel is where we were doing a lot of trial and error. So we were slowly drying them in the oven and that didn't really work. And then we got small dehydrators and that like kind of worked but we needed something bigger so somebody built something that we could use um and then it was a lot of like okay we've got this food processor is this going to create the right grind for it um and that wasn't the right thing i Um, remember coming here (laughs) andrea this is a funny one and they took me in there i was getting a tour and they had one of these like i don't know if you guys like lifted it from a supermarket (laughs) it was one of those (laughs) coffee grinders from like Maxwell House in their greenhouse. I'm like, what do you guys do? like? And they're like, oh, that's where we grind the peppers. I'm like, okay, this uh, is a real mom and pop operation right. here. We've stepped it up. We've got an industrial size grinder okay. now, but we do actually still have that one on hand because it's really helpful if we have a new variety of chili that we're trying to figure out like what kind of grind we want on it and don't want, like we don't have enough to fill up the big grinder. We just bump it through that and we're able to see like, okay, how is this coming out? Like it's easy to re-grind through. So yeah, it's been... I mean, the reason that we are where we are is that we've had 11 years of trial and error and trying to get it right and the ability to build something for ourselves if we need to, to like fill the gap because there's not a lot of other people in the U.S. that are growing chilies just to dry them and grind them into chili powder. Um, So it's a lot of 
figuring out the best options for us um, when a lot of those machines and things don't exist. I mean, Andrea mentioned this earlier when we were talking to Chef Perry. This item has become very important to the best chefs in, the, in America. Absolutely. I mean, it's something where I think I had been with the company for two years when we introduced Pimentaville. And, you know, before Espelette was the only option. And now instead, anytime a chef asks for it, our immediate go-to is to say, nope, you should buy this. And once they try it, they are hooked. It's it's better. It's, it's, it's a, vibrant. It's, it's the color. Everything mm-hmm. about it is really in my opinion, superior to the French product and it's priced, you know, very competitively against it. Absolutely. So Gideon, tell yes. us a little bit about what your role is. I in didn't the... think Gideon was going to talk this whole well, interview. I want, he's sitting I there. I to have his he's, five minutes He was here, looking John. at me. I know, you know, he's a, he's the like the fire chief of, of <laughs> No, but you're looking Philo. at Chrissy. No, but you're looking at her kind of with this like endearing, like these endearing vibes. So yeah. Tell like, what is it like working together? Husband and wife couple. Do you, argue a lot we uh (laughs) do we argue a lot (laughs) no i would say our largest argument that our relationship has ever had is about a different crop other than the peppers uh so we can maybe get into that later okay uh but no i i don't really know what my job is here i think sometimes my job is just solving problems uh and i also make sure that we get paid and everyone on our team gets paid that's a very uh, important job it's a very important job but it's not always like the most glamorous like you know my computers are back there in the corner like it's a lot of staring at a screen but you do a great job finding oh, all of the glass jars oh, we yeah. need when there's like global glass shortages and you know like the 75 different companies we can get the lids from when we need it. You know the exact time of the year when our um, glass screen printer has time for us to be able to screen print our glass. That's a good call. I forgot I'm also like director of procurement, I guess you could say. <laughs> you wear a lot of different hats. Yeah. yeah. Do, yeah. You, do, do you guys ever dream that you'd be in the agriculture business, like growing up, you know, colleges you and degrees. Well, you, and- you were in Boston? Yeah. So our, our, our path, I think, has brought us both the food in different ways. I, I went to hippie school in the woods. I got a business and economics degree. And then I... What's hippie school in, in the, the woods? woods? Humboldt yeah, State? Uh, no, it's back in North oh. Carolina. It's called Warren Wilson College. Okay. It's got now like 700 people. Uh, it's a great place. It's a work college. Should we rant about my undergrad? Uh, it's a work <laughs> college. Uh, and so everyone, regardless of their socioeconomic background, works like, on campus. Uh-huh. So your peers are doing the landscaping. They're like doing the plumbing. They're cooking you meals. They're cleaning up after you. That's it just awesome. teach. It was great. And it teaches you respect and like appreciation in a different way. Anyway, Warren Wilson is great. Uh, no, I love that. Like, yeah, that's, that's yeah. awesome. It really, I mean, it really, I have, I still have very dear friends from, from however many years ago that was, but, uh, but yeah, I was doing business and economics with a focus on sustainable development. Uh, and then I was working in municipal government and, uh, my funding ran out and I went on an adult gap year and it was great. And I, I wound up in Italy and I wound up raising pigs in Italy and that was pretty oh. much like my introduction to local food to good food and to like love of food italy's a really good place for that oh it's a fantastic place for that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so good uh yeah and i came back so i was working and i came back and i was like okay what if like we we got closer to the source here in the united states and so i worked for some local food distributors uh one in colorado and then one in in massachusetts and the one in massachusetts underwent a change and a lot of us um 
decided it was our time to go. And during that time in Massachusetts, I had met Chrissy, who I look at endearingly now. Mm -hmm. uh, And she brought me back here. That's awesome. Yeah. So in addition to, so you guys started with the Pimentaville. Mm -hmm. That was the flagship product, still is the flagship product, I imagine. You guys started getting into other stuff. Tell us a little bit about what else you guys do here at the Boonville Barton Collective. So I think that our farm is similar to farms in France that we're growing a product that we're not selling fresh. So like we don't really sell anything fresh here. And similar to folks in the Basque region, they're growing these Espelette chilies, they're drying them all, they're selling them as powder or something similar. That's not really the case in the US. Most people don't have farms where they just like grow a lot of peppers and then dry them all. Um, But that's the foundation of this farm. And so we needed to continue doing things that worked in the same way. We're really remote and there's like 80,000 people that live in Mendocino County here. So there's not that many people um, to feed and not that many people to eat Espelette chili powder. Um, <laughs> so making sure that we could have other things that fit well with the Espelette chilies um, and that we would have to process the same way was really important. So at this point, I think we have 12 different varieties of chilies um, and they we either sell them in chili flakes, ground chili powder, or in whole dried chilies. Um, it's a mix of like Mexican chilies, some Peruvian chilies, um, the Espelette chilies, um, kind of like anything that we find that we think are really special flavors and want to try to share with other people. They're not a lot of regular chilies that you would see at the grocery store. Um, and then beyond that, uh, we grow a lot of heirloom beans. Um, this year, I believe we have seven different varieties of beans. And you're drying the beans? Yeah, it's all dry beans. Oh, that's awesome. Um, we started with um, heirloom Italian beans uh, and have some Mexican beans. Um, we're growing some Native American tepary beans this year that are supposed to be really good for drought situations. So we're seeing if that would be beneficial to us. Um, it's also really having beans as a good crop rotator with the peppers. Um, and then we have 500 olive trees that we make olive oil out of. Um, unfortunately, we get about 50 gallons a year, and that's it. Um, and then we also have strawberries. We do have one fresh thing, but we sell those mostly to another farm in town that they make strawberry jam with. It's, Is that the strawberry jam that we got to try when no, we got it's, here? It's different, okay. but it's from the Apple Farm. So Perry's family makes it, okay. and it's delicious. <laughs> now, here's another funny thing. We talked about the coffee grinder. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about the bicycle. Because... <laughs> You know, you never know what you're going to find when you walk into their greenhouse here. Um, they have a bike there that is rigged up to, what does it do to the beans? It threshes the beans. Threshes the beans. Thresh- what does threshing Wait. mean? So when you have... Do you like someone has it? to ride you the bike? Yes, yeah, yeah, someone, someone rides has, a stationary should, bike, Is that your Andrea. job, Gideon? I did it some, and then my butt started to hurt a lot. <laughs> And I got off of it and said I needed to do payroll. And then Chrissy got on and never left. Okay, so the the bike is is connected to a thresher. And so when you bring, when we bring the beans in, we don't take them off the plant. We just bring, we rip the whole thing out because it's cured, it's done. And we chuck them a little bit at a time into the thresher. And it's it's a rod that's connected to the back wheel of the bicycle with chain on it. And it's in like a, a our team calls it the coffin um it's a it's a big wooden box and when you pedal it the the rod spins the chains spin and it breaks open the bean pods and you have beans that are left that come through the bottom of the coffin or thresher uh into a bucket and then you have beans 
Who thought yeah, this Yeah, where up? did this come from? Is this like a common thing? No. So, <laughs> boy, this. This is what you call artisanal yeah. production. <laughs> We're going to put a picture of this bike on our social media <laughs> yes. for oh, yeah. everyone to see. The hard, I mean, the hard thing for us is that everything we grow at the scale we do, we're not at the normal scale for any other farm. So we're not growing like 10 pounds of beans that we can clean by hand. Like last year, we grew like 1500 pounds of beans, which is a significant amount, not huge by any means, but way more than you would want to do by hand. They grow these Controni beans from Italy. I mean, really special beans that are incredible. Um, Where I know there's not even enough for the chef's warehouse to get where do Is those there enough end for up? us yeah. to get? I mean, I think last year we pr- like the they plants did not a... do very well, and we produced like forty-five pounds of them. Yeah, they gave me an eight-ounce bag and said, <laughs> "John, this is like winning the lotto." <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, the the beans are a fascinating thing to grow, but the the um, the plans for the bike. Gideon found online. It's from a sustainable ag research grant. Sarah, is that what Sarah stands for? Sure, that sounds good. Sarah, it's a Sarah grant from through the USDA. Through the USDA, and it's it's basically a grant to um, it's basically about applied technology on small farms. And so, some uh, guy back in the Northeast developed plans for basically how to clean beans by a bike. Was his name Lance Armstrong? <laughs> yeah, right. Because he was out. He did, I know he was. You know, he wasn't doing anything. Yeah, yeah. right. No, I had some spare time. <laughs> he thought he'd be efficient. With, right. You know. It's really the, the most frustrating thing about that bike is that you can't continuously pedal because you have to open the coffin, the thresher to add more plants. So it's like a lot of stop and go and you can't go at full speed because then you'll damage the beans. It's like there's like nuance to the biking. And we're like, we really need some interns and people in town are like, I'll help. And I'm like, well, you, we'd love it. But like, it's not really that Fun. I it's mean, not like a Peloton? No. no. Okay. Which no, is unfortunate because that would be like a great man. Talk I'd about some great. harvest interns. To be fair, last year I did upgrade the situation by adding like a little clip onto the handlebars where I could put my phone so I could keep working while I was on the bike yeah. because there was a multitasking. That's awesome. <laughs> That's funny. I want to bring it back to the Espelette pepper, the Pimentaville. How how big is the business now? How many pounds of this are you growing? How much is the chef's warehouse selling? I mean, this is such a great item. It's um, a halo item for us. It's something that makes us who we are. Like, we oh. we love it. That means a lot. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I would say last year we produced, or last year I think we sold about like 5,000 pounds to you guys, which is like a That's a lot. That's a lot. Of, yeah. um, That's 10,000 bad. eight ounce bags. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot that we all fill all of those by hand, basically. Um as far as I can tell, we're the largest producer of Espelette outside of France. I can't really find anyone else that's like growing things at scale. And I think that all goes back to like we built this farm around producing this dried product. Um, and if you're a farm that grows fresh peppers and sells those fresh peppers, it's a lot of work to create and like get all of the equipment together to dry them. So there's like not a lot of other competition out there for us or people who are competing like just to sell Espelette chili powder, except it, for the French. Yeah, in France, there's 160 Espelette producers. Producers. Wow. So that's it. That's it. Wow. That's that, what that's what Google told me this morning. Oh, nice. But <laughs> yeah, which I thought was kind of interesting. And then for you guys to be the only one, it's like it's a gem. Yeah. yeah. And we we grow all these peppers on about three acres, um, so it's not that much land that we're growing on. Like our farm is pretty production heavy. It's really small. Um, we're doing everything as much as we can by hand, we still use like tractors and things. Um, but it's a really hands-on product to make. Um, and you are our biggest buyer of everything. Um, but then we do, 
we do have things available um, in other like retail shops and then on our website as well. Andrew, we have this in every warehouse of the Chef's Warehouse, every coast warehouse, to coast. 14 warehouses across the country or 14 regions, I guess you could call it. Nice. Yeah. I have a question about the consistency of the peppers. So I'm assuming, I mean, it's it's a kind of a spicy, hot pepper. How do you manage year after year from like a consistency perspective? So one thing that I always find really special is when someone gets the new harvest of our espalette and they're like, hey, like this jar of pimento de ville tastes different than the one from last year. And I'm like, that's great that you noticed that. Um, and that's because the weather will change how the chilies will taste. If it's a really, really hot summer, the chilies have a lot more heat to them. Um, and if it's a more cool, calm summer, um, the pepper will have more like tomato, tomatoey notes. It'll be a lot richer in flavor, but won't have that same like punch of heat. And I'm really curious to see what the peppers are going to taste like this year because it's been a much cooler summer. Um, but then last week we had 116 degree weather and it was very hot as these chilies are really heading into their final ripening stages. So we'll see what happens to that. Wow. Um, but we also, outside of the chef's warehouse, um, we sell three different versions of our pimentaville. And so the first chilies that we pull off the plants, um, we save those for our spicy pimentaville. Um, and we, <clears throat> when we're cleaning the seeds and the stems off of them, we take the stems off, leave some of the seeds so that all of the chili veins can really stay in there and keep all of their heat inside. Um, some years it's a lot spicier. Some years it's not as much spicier than our classic pimentaville. Um, but then after the first like really hot chilies come off the plants, we have the classic pimentaville. Is that which, what we have? Yes, chefs? you have the classic pimentaville. Um, and that's like the mid-season peppers that we harvest from like all throughout October, maybe into early November. Um, and then we also have a smoky pimentaville that we make um, that we... When we are drying the chilies, um, we dry them with mesquite as well. Um, and so it has a smokier flavor. It's not as smoky as a smoked paprika, but it has more sweetness to it. Um, and I think some of that sweetness also develops as the chilies sit out and dry longer. They're the last chilies that we're harvesting. And some of that heat kind of transfers into sugars and just has a much richer flavor to it. Um, but yeah, the the flavors of the chilies are different each year. It's like in a band of how different they are. So it's not like consistent. Um, it's not like crazy all over the place as far as how they um, how they vary. Um, Is that for all chilies though? Like depending on the, the heat versus like... Well, think How about it. Have you, like, if you have a jalapeno one day, like, you get one one week and you get one the next week, like, it's not consistent how hot that is. Right, right. But no, the sun, mm. is it for all pep all hot peppers, the sunnier, the, the, the hotter the pepper? I I would expect that to be the case. Like, if the, the more heat there is, the more intensity, the yeah. hotter the chilies are going to be. I did be. not know that. Did you? I did not know that. I learned something today. One of the things I love about working with you guys is that there's a, such creativity going on here. I know that you guys were messing around with saffron and growing crocuses <laughs> a couple years ago. What's on the horizon for you guys? Yeah. Andrew I, and I keep asking for Calabrian chili peppers. Uh, please. But tell us, what's on the horizon? I think that we are trying to grow some other chilies that we can do at a larger volume um, to sell outside of like our smaller customer base. Um, and so we grew some Calabrian chilies last year that we turned into chili flakes. The main impetus for that was that I love putting red pepper red pepper flakes on my pizzas. If I go to a pizza shop or an Italian restaurant, like I want to shake those chili flakes all over it. Uh, but then I feel really guilty because I have no idea what this pepper is. I don't know how long it's been sitting there. And as somebody that grows really like 
pungent and quality chilies. Like I want something better. Um, and so we <clears throat> grew these Calabrian chilies, dried them into flakes, spent a lot of time also sifting this incredibly spicy, very fine powder that came off of them that just made them like inedible um, to like create this like really beautiful fruity and like the right amount of heat um, chili flake. And so we're hoping that maybe next year we'll have a better crop of them that we can sell at a larger scale. Um, we're really trying to figure out how to make whole dried chilies work um, and growing really special heirloom varieties of peppers. Um, instead of just grabbing like chili to our bowl, we, gra- we grow this really beautiful Yawalika chili. Um, and it's a chili to our bowl um, that just has so much more flavor than just like being nothing but heat to it um, and trying to introduce people to different peppers and making sure that they can like experiment instead of just saying like, oh, a red pepper flake, I'll grab the classic crushed red pepper, like try these other flavors, see what what you can do with that. Um, And then we're also trying to figure out what other kinds of shelf stable goods we can create because that's what we're very good at. (laughs) Um, So thinking about citrus and chili marmalade or a strawberry espalette jam. um, And we recently made a a spicy tomato preserve with a comapeno chili that we grow um, and trying to figure out different ways to make our peppers that people might not have heard of before more um, easy to access and something that they can continuously grab for and use in different ways. because like the Espelette chili is incredibly versatile and can be used literally on everything. And people don't always believe me when I say, please use this everywhere. <laughs> like anything you're going to put salt on, use the Espelette, um, use the Piment de Ville. It'll greatly expand the way your food tastes. Um, and we want to try to do that with other peppers as well. What are your favorite uses for the pepper? Honestly, we put it on everything, everything, whether or not Gideon appreciates that. (laughs) I think one day he, I was trying to make this like chocolate peanut butter cake and I was like, oh, I wonder what like the Espelette would taste like in the, in the peanut butter glaze. And he's like, can you just not, can you not do that this time? Like, can you make something without? I have a terrible sweet tooth. (laughs) And I was just like, really, you know, sometimes you just really want sweets. And you don't necessarily want spicy. Andreas, here you that. go. You started the first marital discord <laughs> no, no, over no, no, peppers. No. I see it happening right in front of me. The first discord. He was smiling, was now he's now angry. He, the, the look has changed, Gideon. I don't know. <laughs> well, I want to thank you guys for everything you do. It's companies like yourself, producers like yourself, that make our company what it is. It's the chef's warehouse depends on farmers and producers that are passionate to do what they do. And they make our jobs really wonderful to go to chefs across the country and say, check this out. These people are in Northern California making this incredible pepper um, better than they are in France where it originated. And uh, so we're grateful for that. And thanks for having us today. Yeah, this is amazing. I can't wait to, can we walk around? We want to walk Let's do it. Let's go. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ingredient Insiders. Subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. You can find the products we discussed in today's episode and more at chefswarehouse.com or your favorite specialty retailer.